coming up on Art Palace. We're all afraid there's a right answer and we don't know what it is. Mm. And you're gonna say there isn't a right answer, but as I give you my interpretation, you're either going to nod or shake your head <laughs> or your body language is gonna say to me, well, that's what the six-year-old said when they came. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today is a special bonus episode because September 30th is International Podcast Day, and so I thought it might be fun to listen to some outtakes from the past year. A lot of times I have to cut something just because I don't want the show to be too long or it just feels like it's time to move on. This first clip is from my conversation with Julie Sunderland of Cincinnati Ballet and was definitely one of my favorite parts, but it just felt like we needed to get to the art sooner. Well, are you ready to go look at art? Yes, totally. Can't <laughs> wait. Please make it something abstract and unusual. I know now that you've told me, you've, you've revealed your biases, I should change my, no, my theme and like, no, no, I was going to say, actually, I think you'll probably like what we're going to look at and I should pick something more difficult to mess with you, but I won't. I'm very simple-minded. Don't push this very hard. <laughs> like, give me a chance. That's what's funny though. Okay, so now I'm going to like, like we said, I'm good at digressions. So a lot of people, I feel like it's interesting because I feel like you would think simple-minded, then wouldn't what would be simpler than like a panel of, of red, right? Right. So yes, in reality, a panel of red, you it hits you in some way, right. you appreciate it or you don't. But I know, I'm not simple-minded enough to know, I know there's something going on there <laughs> that people who are more well-read and more educated know why these panels of red are so important. And I want to know and I don't. <laughs> do I want to know enough to study before I come? No, but no, I never want to know in that, that moment. But just like you, we could, I could say, this is a double tour. This is a girl doing this. And then when you, yeah, you yeah. clap, but you don't care enough. Yeah. But I still want to know. Yeah. Like, I, guess, I know people know more. I guess I feel like you can still like anyone can bring what they have with them. I think sometimes it's like, it's just like accepting something for what it is. And that's hard. Especially when it is, you know, when you have art that has for a long time been representing something else. And so you're looking at a representation of something. And then at a certain point, it kind of slowly morphs into being about just the thing and not a representation of the thing. And then you just have to, like, deal with its thingness. But I'm bringing me. So I'm already changing <laughs> its thingness, right? Okay. Just by me being me. Okay. The, the, the problem for the me is, uh -huh. is there, there is an answer. There's a right answer. Mm. We're all afraid there's a right answer and we don't know what it mm. is. And you're going to say there isn't a right answer. But as I give you my interpretation, you're either going to nod or shake your head <laughs> or your body language is going to say to me, well, that's what the six-year-old said when they came or... No, but the six-year-olds say awesome up. stuff. The six-year-olds say great stuff. They sometimes like nail it. Like I've had kids say stuff that blew my mind that they were talking, you know, they're looking at some piece and they say something that is so to the heart of the matter that I've actually not noticed because I'm all wrapped up in the art history of it. Right. 
you know, because you've got this narrative that you've been only looking at it through this one lens. And so when you see this, you see, oh, I understand how this fits into the history of Western art and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, some kid who doesn't know any of that said something about it that is like so 100% true. And you go, oh, yeah, duh, it was right there the whole time. So I don't know. That's what I mean. I think that's what everyone can look at it. I think a lot of times with those pieces that are initially challenging to people, they don't look at them long enough like that's a lot of it is this like it's very easy to sort of dismiss something very quickly and mm. then just kind of move on um because you don't get it and then uh, and then you might never get it or you might never like it but i think if you i've never i've almost never um had somebody look at a piece longer and they ended up liking it less mm. Like, they've always come away appreciating it, I think, on some level more than they did when they started. Maybe they didn't like it, but I think if the more they look and the more they think about it, the more they end up getting out of it. So let's go look at art. Let's do it. The next clip is from the episode I recorded with one of our docents, Zoray Zand, for our exhibition, A Shared Legacy, Folk Art in America. Zoray told me she thought we could record in about 20 minutes, but in reality, we talked for an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, this was actually one of my favorite parts, and like the last clip, we get into big discussions about the nature of art, but since we weren't really talking about any piece in particular, I had to cut it because it just wouldn't have made sense as an audio guide. You can tell this is this is not a self-taught artist. This is somebody who studied this for a while, and yeah, that that that's probably a good time to bring up the the very confusing and very fuzzy definition of folk art. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think is it makes folk art maybe hard for people to get into because it's really hard to explain what it is, and even to us, it's hard to explain what it is. It is. I looked it up again because uh, folk art means people, uh, the people's art. Right. In German, they say also Volkskunst, exactly literally translated. Yeah. And the Germans call it also, and now I say only in German because we have got a lot of uh, German artists here, so right. to say, and it says Heimatskunst. Heimat means home. And not necessarily your house as a home, but your surrounding right. as a home. So what you learned at your home to beautify your home, and that became a tradition and a trademark for your surrounding. And people who came over to America from Europe, they brought part of the home with them. Right. And continued the tradition in beautifying the home in a way. And objects which they would be using on a daily basis, so to say. So they tried to make it nice, like the weather or part, like, uh, I mean, the drawer here that, uh, and like, uh, I mean, the paintings on the wall, anything, I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, to me, it, I guess the where I go is it's stuff that seems always a little bit outside of maybe the academic traditions mm -hmm, of art. Mm -hmm. So even if, um, even if say this, like where somebody is trained, um, we don't necessarily think of something like carousel figures as part of, of, of capital A art in no. those sentences. So it's something that's just a little bit outside of, of 
what we consider typically that sort of academic art, but you know, ultimately somebody put a lot of thought into it, somebody put a lot of care into it, there's a lot of creativity that goes into all of these things, and it still is art. Um, and so I guess where it gets fuzzy is that there are pieces that we consider to be folk art that were made by people who do have academic training and were kind of making choices to intentionally look non-academic. Yeah, folk art influenced many uh, famous uh, painters, for example. Oh, like yeah. Picasso one, was one of them. Right. And so there's always a, those things that, you know, make the whole definition a little fuzzy. But for me, that, that, that separation of it from of what we think of as, as the tradition of, you know, it has to have a little bit of a break from that. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I, I think it's interesting because I always love that sort of, we're going to do it ourselves, like, let's cobble it together and like, let's make this thing. And I, I find all of those choices that they make uh, to be really charming. It is charming. You know, and it's, 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 it's kind of fun to see how somebody makes, makes the best of what they've got. It brings the soul out. I mean, yeah. what do you think? It's not like structured. I mean, you have to do it this way and this way and that way. This is more, you have got more freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're free to do whatever you want to. And often it really hits, it's, uh, hits a nail. I mean, it's really neat and yeah. whimsical and nice. But I think that's also, and I think that specifically the reason I like it is probably the reason some people really don't like it. <laughs> you know, because when I'm looking at it, I think um, a lot of people probably look at some of these pieces, some of these paintings, some of these sculptures even, and, and just say like, yeah, but they're doing it wrong, right? Like, that's not how you're supposed to do that. That's not how you're supposed to paint that. That's not how it's supposed to work. And I, I, I guess, and that's kind of what I like about it is that it is, it's kind of transgressive in this weird way. And, and I know that maybe that sounds strange to be like folk art. I don't know, like folk art is transgressive, but I kind of feel like that's the underlying appeal of it all is that it's kind of transgressive against the, the way we expect a painting to look. Like it's breaking the rules and that's what's fun about it. It brings the message right to the point, so to say. You see right away what they want to say. I mean, uh, it's like poetry, I would say. The yeah. freestyle and the, I mean, the ones which you have to go by all the rules and regulations. I mean, this kind of poet ha a poem has to be this way and right. can't be any other way. But this one is more free. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of, in, in, in the, when, by letting go of those rules, yeah, you, you find something that's a little more whimsical and a little more fun and, and yeah, I don't know. The, so much of this work has so much character. And for me, who is not an artist, that appeals a lot because I can associate with it a little much oh, really? better. Yeah, but, but yeah, maybe from an, uh, somebody who is really trained, as you said, sees the flaws first. I don't see the flaws first. Hmm. <laughs> I, 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 that's interesting to hear because actually I, I feel like coming from the position as an artist, I find it very freeing because I think, yeah, it's nice to see somebody be like throwing away the rules in a way. Like I think that's really uh, refreshing. Um, but I feel like a lot of people who um, come to a museum to see art, a lot of times their, their thought is um, they want to see something they can't do, mm. right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a really big thing you come up against a lot is that anything that dips close to their own abilities is seen as less valuable. And, and I always think that's so, so revealing. <laughs> but on the other hand, when you see this, 
you're challenged and say, maybe I could do it. And it challenges you to do it because you think, maybe it's not that difficult and you will try it. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I don't agree with that assessment. I, I always <laughs> think like, to me, that, that boils down to this idea of, I, I don't think work ethic should be tied up in art and like whether we think something is good or not, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. this idea that, well, somebody must have worked really hard on this, so it must be good. And I don't think that's true because I think you can work really hard at something that's an utter failure. You can work really hard at very bad things and you can work not a lot on something that's great. And I've, I've experienced this a lot in my work um, that the things I've struggled with and, you know, oh, this is so hard and I work so hard on it. And then I've made another piece that's sort of effortless. And a lot of times people really love the effortless one more. And it's hard for you to see past your own work mm -hmm. ethic and go like, oh, but I worked way more on this thing. And it doesn't really matter because the people don't know what you did. And, and they're just, they've just got this thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of pieces, I think, when people look at paintings and they see um, this really perfectly rendered face and this really perfectly rendered body, that's a way of saying, this person worked hard. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they can translate that work ethic into quality, mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is my benchmark of what makes something good is that somebody worked really hard at it. And I can see that because it looks just like the thing. But mind you, then again, in modern art, we see it differently. I mean, there is art, there's art where scholars say, oh my God, that's beautiful. And the ordinary person looks at it and says, oh, come. I don't think, see anything in there. Yeah. How, how, how do you call it art? <laughs> I think that's the same argument. I think it's the same thing. It's because they're looking at it and they don't see any work ethic. Yeah. Like, right, the, the idea of painting something, uh, like a color field painting that's just looking at like one field, you know, one color all across a canvas for the most part, um, feels uh, like no work at all to, to, the, to most people. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's... There's like, I could make the argument like, well, it is harder than you think. Because if I gave you a bunch of paint and, and you could try to make this canvas, like you would find that it's really hard to make a perfectly flat canvas, which is true. It is hard. It's not easy to do that. But I don't think that's the point either. Like, I don't think that's what the artist was trying to do in that instance. I don't think they were making a painting that's all yellow to make me go like, wow, they must have really worked hard on this. So that's being disingenuous about what the real goal of that art is to me. And I feel like the, the thing I always come back to when talking about those works is, is that I think it's, it's better to appreciate art like you would appreciate music, mm -hmm. and that you just kind of say, well, yeah, but I, I don't think people listen to a symphony and say, but I don't get it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, that's just not even a part of their vocabulary. And it's about expectations, you know? We are more comfortable with music. We listen to music enough that we know how to sit down and just go, like, let it wash over us and just kind of take it in and live in it in the moment. And it's about expectations. And I think a lot of people have trouble getting over that with art where they can't just so, sort of say, like, I'm just going to experience this as color and just sort of, like, think about it and, and what the artist has actually given me here and what am I gonna do with that? Um, and that's really hard. And the other thing is that I think people also come to an institution like a museum or a gallery um, with the expectation that they have to like everything. No. Right? No. So that's the other thing that, gets, yeah. that, that keeps them back is that there's this expectation of like, well, I'm here, this, this is an art museum, I have to like all this stuff. And it's like, no, you don't. 
Nope. You don't have to. And you know what? You, you, you don't also have to be like set in uh, your ways about anything either. Like you might not like something today and like it tomorrow. Exactly. Which happens to me all the time. Uh, yeah. I might have gone by this uh, uh, I mean chest uh, and not look at it. But yeah. then when I paid attention to the birds, I started to love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like this with a lot of decorative arts. And it's funny because I realized on this, sh on this podcast, I've talked a lot about decorative arts. It's, it's actually really bizarre how many times decorative arts keep coming up. Um, but I think actually it's, it's fun for me because they are the pieces like this chest of drawers we just looked at that I would have not thought a lot about. I would have... Mm -hmm. I would have probably walked by it. And so by you forcing me to sort of look at the decorations on this, um, I, I see a lot more in it. And I do appreciate this sort of growing flower motif and everything that's happening. Because that's something I definitely wouldn't have thought of um, or have really paid much attention to. And that shows again that the artist on here was thinking of something, had something in mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and now we are trying to figure out most likely his or her story. <laughs> yeah. I say this, uh, I've said this probably, I don't know if I've said it on the show before, but I feel like by working at a museum, it has made me actually way more, it has made me surprisingly less snobby about mm. art. And it has made me actually accept a lot more things as art than ever before. Um, just because I think ultimately at the end of the day, you're like, well, somebody made this, somebody put effort into it, and it was a creative endeavor. And to me, that like, yeah, then it's art. Like, and, and I think that's another thing is people have trouble, that the idea that once something is art, um, that that is a standard of, like a measurement of quality, right? Like art, being art isn't a measurement of quality. It's just simply what it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, yeah, it's art. Now we have to talk about whether we like it, what we think it means, all of that stuff. But just being art is like actually a pretty low bar to pass. <laughs> it's like food. Some food you like, some food I don't like, and some food we all like. Right. It's exactly, and we grow the palate for it, and so on. So it's actually that's a really great comparison too. I agree. Like food is actually perfectly a, a really beautiful analogy that I, I I think about sometimes too, because it's just like when you're a kid, you like you know what do you eat? Uh, chicken nuggets and French fries, and you know that's your palate is not terribly sophisticated, and you don't like a lot of things. And, well, I, except I was a kid who ate everything, but <laughs> <laughs> most kids. Um, but that was less about sophistication and more just about being a, you know, bottomless pit. Um, but, you know, then as you grow older, you, you try more things. And every once in a while, you go back and, and try something. Like, I used to love this as a kid. I remember, you know, some garbage food that, you know, we would have around the house, like, you know, Twinkies or something. Oh, this is so great. And then you try and go... Well, that wasn't very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like your taste of change, you know? Yeah, it and changes. I, and art's like that, too. You might like something a lot when you're younger, and, and you're kind of going on a journey with what you're looking at, and then by the end, you know, you have changed, and what you used to like, you know, it's the same. Like, it hasn't changed, but you're, you're a changed person, and your views on it are different now. And that's why I believe a museum is great. Like our museum here, we have got all these different exhibitions. Every time, a different taste and different thing. So when we come constantly and see every time, so we grow. We start to learn about other, how do you call it, other artwork. 
and it teaches us something. And then well, we can decide, okay, no, I don't like this kind. I mean, I don't like Baroque style, for example. And I love folk art, for example. I mean, it depends, but it gives us the opportunity to come back again and again and see different exhibitions and uh, grow our palette. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have talked so long and we haven't even gotten to the next, next piece. Yeah, so, we have to skip all the other ones. I know, <laughs> we're like, okay. Well, let's just zoom ahead. In the recent episode with artist Matt Kors, we spent about two minutes discussing the Netflix reality show Terrace House. In reality, this conversation was about 20 minutes. Even if you're not into Terrace House, it leads to some interesting conversations about language and culture. At the beginning of this clip, we were talking about our memories of visiting the art museum as children. I do remember my brother bringing me when I was really little, which would have been before the renovations. Right. And I don't remember anything about it other than like, we also went to the Natural History Museum and I was much more interested because it had a cave. Right. Yeah. So. I used to love that. Cave. <laughs> and the planetarium. Yeah, planetarium. totally. Yeah. And we also would go to the zoo a lot. Yeah. That was like a, a staple of grade school field trips. And yeah. And because I'm a real creature of the night, I was like all about like the nocturnal house. Oh, yeah. There too. I love the nocturnal house. <laughs> Anything with a fake <laughs> cave is right. whatever, where I want to be. Yeah, I've always I've always known that you were just fascinated by caverns, Russell. <laughs> that's 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 what I'm all about. I think we've established now on the podcast that my aesthetic is 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 informed by the film Labyrinth and okay. is is mostly about cobwebs and glitter. Okay. And that's yeah. that's so that's like the foundation right. and then also a love of fake caverns. Yes. Yeah. Is, is also in there too. <laughs> I feel like these two things are probably related. I think there's some fake caves in Labyrinth as well. Right. A love of fake caverns. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely fake caverns in Labyrinth. Oh, oh, I mean, many. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I started um, watching Aloha State the other day. Oh, really? Terrace House, Aloha State, I should say. Excellent. Um, I, uh, my wife and I tried uh, to watch some new episodes of Aloha State last night, only to find that they have not been released yet, and we so were they're still they're still putting out more. Yeah, as far as I know, the weird thing is the first season of Terrace House, like it was just all barfed onto Netflix all at once, right. and the whole thing was there, and you could just binge watch all. <laughs> 40 episodes right. or however like, yeah, many there's like there over 40, I yeah, think. Yeah, there's a lot. But then um, Aloha State, they're doing some strange thing where they release, like they release it in little eight, chapters. Like so it's like series chunks. one. Yeah, it says like part two. one, part two, part three. So they're yeah. up to three I saw on there. Which I think is kind of stupid on their part because I feel like that's going to kill the buzz that was around the show. I think there were a lot of people kind of talking about like, oh, this show is so fun and addictive and then they're they're like killing it by making people wait to watch right. and i feel like i don't hear people talking about it that much anymore but. yeah i do wonder if it if they would have been better off just waiting longer and just releasing it all at once or even like maybe putting it in two bigger chunks of yeah. you know like and maybe they like just parceling it out in eight 
Right. Parts. I actually, the reason I started watching too is probably because I thought it was done. I thought there were, I thought that was it for Aloha State. I don't think so because the last I remember, I mean, it's been a busy summer and we haven't watched in a couple months. <laughs> right. But the last I remember, there was like some, you know, cliffhanger or a new, a new uh, oh. housemate arrived and then that was the end of series three or two or three or something like that. And, and then we were just sort of waiting to okay. see more. I assume they're staggering it now because they're kind of making it and releasing it as it's made. Yeah, yeah, so. and it seems like at least I, I, from from the from boys and girls in the city, it seemed like <laughs> there was a pretty quick turnaround on in Japan at least. Yeah, where they were, you would see them watching, watching the themselves. Show. Yeah, like which was so strange. So they yeah. would like be sitting at that iMac watching the episode that happened like. <laughs> right. Five weeks ago or something. Yeah. You're like, that was a really quick turnaround. Yeah. So it, I'm a little unclear on how, yeah, like what the timing is, even in Japan, right? Like the cast members, there's like a lot of hype, you know, and people watching the show as they're making it in Japan, I guess. Yeah. And then new, yeah, a new member will show up and then they'll show them in the room watching. They're like, oh, I just got caught up on what happened before I got here, which is just kind of weird. So it's tough to, it's tough to suss out like what's, what's the time frame and when it's being made versus, you know, when are new people arriving and all that stuff? Yeah. So far I've, I've liked the, the differences in Aloha state. Like I like that it has a, a, its own kind of identity, at least in the first bit. I've, I've enjoyed it. I don't know. It is different because yeah. the, the people are younger. I've noticed, right. I feel like, and that can be both annoying in some of them. <laughs> Yeah. And and some of them adorable. Right, right. So, yeah, my wife and I have a mix. So my wife is uh, uh, Japanese and um, we have kind of a mixed reaction to the season two, Aloha State, as it's known. Yes. Um, I feel like, and I think she kind of feels this way too, that they are pandering to the popularity in the United States of the first series. Oh, I totally think and so. And by moving it to, to Hawaii so that to try to get them, you know, yeah. more Americans interested in, in the show. And also there's been so much English spoken on season on, on, on Aloha state. It's like there, most of the cast members I mean, at least half of them seem like they were fluent in English or, or they spoke, you know, pretty good English and it seems to be like and out of the i'm i'm still on the first like 6 i don't in it seems like out of that 6 only 2 don't speak english very well and even yeah, right, then right. they have like some handle on it and and most of the people have like i think it's still interesting though because if you're thinking about hawaii and its position sure. and how it is this like mixed bag that has a lot of japanese influence right um that it it's kind of interesting that the cast is this weird like most of them are of mixed nationalities sure. and they come from like like all over the place so i remember like the first guy that gets there he looks like really american but he's the one like that actually doesn't speak right. english very well yeah yeah um and i like that they've so far and, and maybe they drop it so but like i kind of like watching the language stuff happen like where they're like they stop speaking Japanese and start speaking English. You mean like I do like thinking about why they like certain things get said. Sure. In which language? And sometimes right. I'm always like conscious of like 
are they saying this so this person doesn't pick up on it? I don't know if that's much of it. I think usually it's more just the characters who are English as their first language will just drop into English more often. Yeah. But I like also there's a scene between um, Avian and Naomi (laughs) where they're like making a phone call and she's trying to, Avian is trying to help her get a job. Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. She's like literally like Cyrano whispering things (laughs) in her ear. It's so good. And I love that. Like I love that stuff where they're like helping each other out with the language. Cause at that point it becomes like a part of the show. Um, and it doesn't feel just like as pandery to, to me, but I did totally have that same thought of like, I bet this is a choice made largely due to the popularity the show has gained in the US. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, it's kind of a double edged sword. On one hand, I like, I mean, my Japanese is not that great, and but I really like watching shows that are in Japanese. Right. Um, and especially set in Japan. Um, so, I kind of enjoyed season one, uh, Boys and Girls in the City. Uh, <laughs> because like it's, it's due plug. <laughs> That's right. right. Check it out, everybody. Um, I kind of liked that season because it just seemed like, it was like more immersive or something, right? I'm like right. watching a bunch of mostly Japanese, you know, young people speaking Japanese to each other in a Japanese setting. And so I like that because I feel like maybe I'm, getting uh i don't know like hearing hearing the, the language a little bit more right. and I'm, I'm like learning a little bit more about it on the other hand i will say that uh you know when my wife and i watch shows that are in japanese i mean the subtitles have to be on so that i can figure out right. what's going on because i can only pick up words and phrases here and there at this stage um and one th- it can get a little frustrating because i find that i just spend all my time reading yeah and i you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty visual person, so I, li- I love to see, like, what's, you know, what's happening in the actual room or, in, you know, what the characters are actually doing. And so, you know, I'm constantly just, I feel like I'm reading a book or something instead of watching a TV show. So that's, so it's kind of a, two, yeah. a two-sided thing. I think it does make you care. Like, my reaction to it when I started watching Terrace House was also the same where I was like, I feel like I'm paying so much more attention to every little phrase somebody says because I have to read it. Right. That I'm I'm giving these things a lot more weight than I might give them in English. Yeah, right. Like the the subtitles make me pay attention to the language more than I would yeah, in sure. any other instance where I would just be like, Oh yeah, some people went to a cafe and they talked and Yeah, actually you know. I'm always asking my wife about certain words and, and maybe this is one spot where the the subtitles are actually kind of good for me um whether or not she can answer my question uh, depends but like for example i noticed that uh a lot in in interactions within the house a lot of the cast members would say it would be translated as that's insane or something like that (laughs) like they say oh that's insane a lot like more than i mean people you know in english in the United States, you, people might say that, you know, right. I might say, oh, that's insane, Russell. But like, they, it seems like it pops up a lot in the show. And yeah. so I kind, I don't remember what her response was, but I remember asking my wife, like, what, what is the word that they're translating to insane? And does it really mean that? Yeah. And, you know, is that, is this a common slang, you know, is that common slang for, mm-hmm. you know, people in Japan or younger people in Japan? So that, that kind of stuff pops up a lot. You know, the translation is really interesting to see how it's translated. And every now and then, you know, my wife will say, 
yeah, that's not a very good translation right. or, or, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Or, so it's kind of interesting to see uh, how, what phrases get translated to what things and what doesn't make as much sense in English yeah. and what yeah, carries no, we, we, that, that happens as well in our house too. If we watch anything Brazilian, is right. something gets translated weirdly. And he's like, uh, that's not, right. that's not really what they just said. Yeah. But right. I guess <laughs> it's okay. Like, or sometimes like, the the harshness level you know like if it's like an insult or something right. like that's a little off like that can be hard to kind of get perfect uh yeah like, absolutely because like oh well this word it translates the same idea but the like harshness of that word is different in the the language right so oh it yeah it's more insulting mm. in either or so it seems harsher here or there you know yeah i've had this conversation with my in-laws bunch of times too when we go to japan to visit my wife's family um there have been a number of times where i bring up some aspect of japanese culture that i've seen translated a certain way or explained a certain way and you know i'll have a conversation with my father-in-law about it who is a retired linguistics and communications professor Mm -hmm. and he you know he's fluent in english but he's He's taught Japanese and and English at different times, and he really loves language. And I've had so many conversations with him where I'll bring something up, and he'll say, what? And, the, and I'll say, well, yeah, this is how I've heard it translated. Uh, and he'll say, no, and just shake his head and say, like, that does, that's not quite right. Like um, the, um, the Basho uh, poems, right? Basho, the famous Japanese poet with the book, uh, which I've seen the title, I, I can't remember what it is in Japanese, but I've seen the title rendered like the narrow road to the interior or the narrow road to the north or the road to the north and th- things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the, the the book of poems basically that chronicle his walking journey, you know, in yeah. this big loop all around Japan. Um, and I remember my father-in-law talking about it and me saying, oh, yeah, doesn't it? Isn't it called like the narrow road to the interior or something like that? And he was like, not re- that doesn't, that's not really a good translation. It doesn't yeah. really make sense. So that kind of stuff pops up a lot when I'm talking to them. Yeah. Well, this has been the uh, Terrace House cast. Uh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> for joining us. That's right. I have no idea how much of that I can actually yeah. use. Like, that was insane, Russell. <laughs> Imagining the subtitles below. Right. <laughs> Well, one of the things, though, about, I mean, I it felt so good because I, I took a big break between the first season and this one. And I, it was, like, so lovely to have that panel back and, like, see them all there. I'm like, oh, they're all there. Right. Like, and and I was just so happy to to have them back as my, like, commentary, oh, running yeah. commentary on the action of the show. Yeah, I that's, like... That show would not be nearly as enjoyable if you if you didn't get to have these breaks where you watch the panelists all joke about the show. Well, and I wonder too. It's like it's it feeds the part of me that is always like interested in commentary on what I've seen. So like the fact that I listen to podcasts about other television shows I watch, right? It's almost like this one takes care of it all in itself, right? Like you, you watch it and then you have your, uh, your little uh, TV buddies come in and talk about it. Right. And then you go back and, and it's the same kind of 
way they talk about it too, where they're sort of breaking down what just happened and analyzing it and making jokes about it. Right. They also provide a great like kind of cultural. Um, they they help I think for me because I don't always know like what is and isn't normal. Yeah, definitely. And so like especially in the first season when I was watching it, they were really helpful in just ga- gauging the like normalcy of dating customs sure which have like pretty seem to have pretty rigid structures to them at least in like they, they seem to move at a a very predictable right like rate and steps and people sort of i don't know like all the the members in, of the show would always sort of like we went to this park and then we held hands and right then, like there's all these like steps that somebody goes to um and so I was always fascinated by this because I, I would just think like everyone seems like so Victorian almost about this and their yeah. like how reserved um, it, it strikes us. But then like I would, it was nice to have the panel who would just be reacting either normally or if somebody kind of broke. I think there was one where somebody like held hands way too early. Yeah. And they was, were all like kind of sh- shocked by it. Was it uh, Amon? And, yeah, uh, I think yeah, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. And it's tough to tell how much of that is. I mean, I would assume that, that, that the pace of a relationship is not that regulated right, for just right. an average, average Japanese couple or something. But um, so it's tough to tell how much of that is coming from the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, like in the same way that like the bachelor has its own weird rules of, of dating that are not exactly like an American's actual dating customs, but it's like, there's this like, well, this is the way the show works. Right. You do this, then you do that, then you do this. Right. Like, and anything that kind of breaks the formula, it's like, but that's not how the show works. Right. Which brings us back to games and the rules of the game. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that, that panel, uh, of, uh, people reacting to the to what happens on Terrace House though like they're they are a really interesting kind of cultural yeah window like um one thing that i always notice is that uh there will be like a lot of references to where certain cast members or people on the show you know or panelists are from and how that relates to their personality yeah. which is a real japanese thing yeah yeah and yeah so there are a couple of panelists who Actually, maybe two or three, maybe like half of the panelists, they're from Osaka. And Osaka is known. I mean, this is my, my impression of it. And what I'm told by my yeah, wife yeah. and my family is, you know, Osaka is the town that's like, they love food. And con- there are a lot of comedians from Osaka. Okay. And it's kind of like people there are supposed to be boisterous and right. kind of zany. And so those two, those two uh, the two men, the older men who are comedians, uh, who are panelists on the show, right. um, I think they're maybe both from Osaka. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so references to that like pop up on the show and um, someone yeah, will say, they're... oh, you're you're from such and such, so you would say that. And everyone will laugh and I'll have to turn to my wife and she'll say, oh, he, they mean that that person sounds like a person from Osaka or from Kyoto right. or whatever. Yeah, I remember um, in Boys and Girls in the City, there was so, uh, one of the women was from a place where everyone just kept talking about how like blunt everyone is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it was like this, like that they were known for being direct and blunt. Yeah. And, and so that was always used to kind of like explain her behavior. Right. Usually. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and I forget I forget who that was. Yeah, uh, I can't remember or her name where now. exactly she was from. But there are lots of that whole regional thing is like I mean it's everywhere, you know, but oh, it's yeah. so pronounced in Japan. I guess maybe because I don't know, there are a lot of people in a in a relatively smaller space and so localities be, and you know what's what's good from that place is right. like very pronounced. Like you know, I mean in the United States you know, peaches come from Georgia and we know we can get good right. cheese in Wisconsin or something like that. Yeah. And so we have that too, but I'm always struck by how pronounced it is in Japan. You know, like if you want, if you want green tea, it, it come really good green tea is from this area. And yeah. well, the people over there are so refined and they love to wear kimonos. The people over there are so <laughs> funny and loud, you know, yeah. it's, it's very, uh, it's like a big talking point. Yeah, that's that's that is I I love those when you see it reflected in other places and you re, like yeah. it feels maybe like a little more artificial or something when you're not in it. Yeah, sure. Like if you weren't raised in it, you just sort of like, but that can't be true for all, you know, like right. you just say, but I remember when um I was visiting Brazil and we had the same kind of experience, which is there's a lot of similarities between their stereotypes about the North and the South of the right. country that are, they're mimic ours, except they're like reversed. Um, okay. Because it, it's almost like a temperature thing somehow. I don't know, but like <laughs> it, it, it's the same thing. Right. Whereas like they think of people from the North, they have this very like attitude about them as being like slow and like what we think of as like kind of a Southern thing. Right. Like a more of, easygoing pace and that kind yes, of stuff. Right? Yes. Like very like laid back, you know, that right. country life. Yeah. Kind of. Right. So it's a, it's a really, there's a lot of those ideas of like, Oh, they're from this area. Well, you know, and then sure. the, you know, when it, you get further South, it's like you're in New York or something. Right. Like, Sound very Paolo cosmopolitan. Is, oh yeah, it's like they're very like their ideas of them are very like uh oh they're very reserved okay. and they're you know they're not as out they're not as big and outgoing and they're you know right so they have like all these ideas about different and from each city and region thinks has a lot of ideas about the others. Right, <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> Well, we haven't even talked about the Art Academy once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Anna England, Kinship, William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, and Anila Kayum Aga, All the Flowers Are for Me. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. We also have a new Facebook group for Art Palace, so come join it and hang out with us. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate, review us, and subscribe on iTunes. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.